It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, June 5th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. There's no quick fix for inflation. So how long will Americans pay more for gas and groceries? And it will start to come in over time and will become much more comfortable by the end of 2023. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. It's primary day again this Tuesday, and a whole bunch of states have decided June 7th is the day to vote. This time around, though, we may hear less about former President Trump and a lot more about California. Democrats won't have many opportunities to flip Republican-held seats. It's just the political environment is just so good for Republicans. There are hardly any opportunities for Democrats to, to go on offense. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. And there's not, we can't take immediate action that I'm aware of yet to figure out how we bring down the price of gasoline back to $3 a gallon. And we can't do that immediately with regard to food prices either. President Biden instead says Congress can pass his proposals to bring down other bills for families for things like prescription drugs and child care. But inflation may linger. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen admitted in an interview with CNN that she was wrong to describe inflation as small and manageable, indicating unanticipated shocks have boosted energy and food prices. Inflation year over year is up more than 8 percent, its highest level in about 40 years. The Federal Reserve is raising key interest rates. That's intended to slow down the economy, bringing down demand. But that could take months or longer. That's the expectation of Mark Zandi, the chief economist for Moody's Analytics. We're already a year into this high inflation. And even under the most uh, optimistic scenarios, we've got another year or two to go to get back to something we all feel comfortable with. So, yeah, I don't think anyone would characterize this as transitory. Why was it characterized that way? I mean, I know the White House has sort of said, well, you know, things happen that were out of our control. Um, did they maybe paint too rosy a picture of, of what was happening? Well, I, I think they got surprised by the pandemic. Uh, you know, if you remember back this time last year, the vaccines were getting rolled out. President Biden gave a speech. Go uh, enjoy your families on July 4th, mm -hmm. uh, Freedom Day. And uh, we thought the pandemic was over, or at least I did. Most people did. But, you know, the Delta wave then hit soon thereafter, crushed us, but creamed Asia where all the supply chains mm -hmm. began. And that's when the inflation really became a big deal, a big problem got on the radar screen. And then the Russian invasion. I mean, I, you know, since oil prices skyward, I mean, before the Russian invasion, uh, gasoline prices were headed to below $3 a gallon. Now it feels like we're headed towards five. And that's directly related to, you know, what the Russians are doing and what, well, how we're responding to the Russian invasion. So those two things, the pandemic and the Russian invasion, I think were surprising. Uh, and, turned what should have been a transitory acceleration in inflation to something that, well, what we're experiencing now, very painfully high, persistent inflation. Is there any blame on the amount of spending that was done during the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic, that the billions of dollars passed by Congress um, to you sort of infuse cash back into the, the business sector? I think that's a stretch. I mean, I think the American Rescue Plan 
which is March of 2021, did mm -hmm. juice up inflation in that period. It certainly increased demand because it, it, you know, the economy has been rip roaring since. Uh, but at this point, I don't. It's hard to connect the dots. I mean, you know, one piece of evidence of that is inflation in the rest of the world is as high, if not higher, than it is here. Go take a look at UK inflation or Canadian inflation or Australian inflation. Economies that are similar to our own, their inflation rates are higher. So that would not be consistent with the idea that this high inflation is the result of something we did here in the United States. It's, it's more consistent with the idea that it's something that's affecting the entire global economy, then that would be the pandemic, uh, by definition, and the Russian invasion. You know, yesterday, the president uh, told reporters there is not anything we can do. There's not a switch that can be hit to, to sort of bring down gas, bring down uh, food prices. That's going to be a tough sell to, to voters in the midterms, I would imagine. Well, yeah. what, what can the administration do, if anything, um, to, to bring down the, the, these prices? I mean, gas and food primarily are, are sort of driving this anxiety amongst an awful lot of households. Well, in the immediate future, it's all about oil prices, getting oil prices mm -hmm. down. And he, he's right. He doesn't have any tools in the toolkit except for the release of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. And they've done some of that. Done. Yeah, which I think... You know, certainly has it didn't bring down prices, but I think it certainly limited the price increases because that was a consequential billion barrels a day of oil, go and that's the capacity of the refining industry to process the oil. So I think that was helpful, but certainly doesn't solve the problem. And particularly now with the EU, the European Union banning Russian oil, uh, that's a big hole to fill. Uh, if, if the Europeans aren't buying Russian oil and the Russians can't ship it to eastward to India or China, which they can't do quickly. Mm -hmm. You got to fill that hole, and that means it's got to come from Saudi. That's where Saudi Arabia. That's where a lot of the excess capacity is. United Arab Emirates, or here in the U.S. So we need to call upon you know American frackers and producers to, to ramp it up. But that's difficult too. They are putting more rigs into the ground and starting to pump more oil. But there is, it feels like there might be some limitations, physical limitations on the ability of the industry to produce a lot more oil, at least enough oil to fill the void. So that means higher prices. So he's right. The president's right. There's no easy solution here. There's no no uh, you know immediate solution to the high oil prices, and that's key to inflation, at least, at least in the very near term. You've worked in the White House. How do you communicate that to voters? Well, it's tough, right? I mean, at the end of the day, there's nothing you can say to make it easy, right? This is this is painful. I mean, the average American household uh, is you know shelling out you know, uh, less I count, less I calculate 450, 500 bucks more a month to buy the same goods and services they were a year ago because of the high inflation. That's, that's filling your gas tank. That's going to the grocery store. That's paying rent. That's, you know, pretty much everything. And so it's, you know, it, it, that's a reality and uh, there's no getting around that reality. Like, you know, it, the, pre the president and the administration is saying, Hey, look, uh, you know, I, I acknowledge what's going on. I hear you. Here are some of the things I can do, uh, but at the end of the day, it's a tough sell, right? Because, you know, people see what's going on with their pocketbook and, and they don't like it. And, you know, we look at the Fed. And I know the president has sort of talked about this is the Fed's area and he doesn't want to interfere with, with that decision making, the independence of the Fed. Is this the right approach, this sort of rapid increase of interest rates over a sustained period? I mean, it sounds like they're going to be doing this for the next several months. Uh, yeah, I think the Fed's, you know, you could definitely argue the Fed was slow to start raising rates and even articulating to investors when they begin. Uh, hard to criticize them too much, given that they were also surprised by the pandemic and the Russian invasion, but nonetheless. But at this point, 
I think they've got policy right where they need it to be. And one way to uh, gauge that is inflation expectations. Inflation expectations are uh, down, uh, and that uh, is a you know very positive development because if inflation expectations remain elevated, then actual inflation is going to remain high as well. So the fact that they've got that back down because of their tough talk and the increase in interest rates uh, recently, that's a very that's very positive development. In fact, I'd go so far as to say. I feel a lot better about the economy's prospects and the co- prospects of getting inflation down over the next year or two because of the Fed actions, uh, you know, over the past uh, six, eight, nine, ten weeks. But isn't there a real risk of a recession at trying to sort of slow down the economy in a way that that is necessary to combat inflation? How do you? Yeah, I, I know you. I, I've heard the term soft landing. I guess try and explain to me what that is and what the real worry here is that what the Fed's doing could lead to a recession. Well, so. A soft landing would be the Fed raising interest rates fast enough, far enough to slow growth so that we don't go past full employment and inflation moderates, but not raising rates so far so fast that it undermines the stock market, the housing market, business investment, and we go down the tubes into recession. That's a soft landing. That's threading a needle, you know. So that's <laughs> it why like it. it is, and that's why recession risks are so high. That's why I would say I think the odds are still that they'll be able to thread the needle with a little bit of luck on the pandemic and the Russian invasion, but the risks of recession are uncomfortably high because you know we're you know in a place in the business cycle where it's it's always tricky. And it's particularly tricky now because you've got the uncertainties created by the pandemic and the Russian invasion. And those risks, I imagine, grow as the invasion can, goes on, the war goes on, uh, and sort of the, the uncertainty if, if China has another sort of lockdown situation. Yeah, I, you know, I, th- yes, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it does feel like the pandemic is headed in the right direction, right? We've got waves of the virus likely still coming, but it feels like each new wave is less disruptive to the global economy than the previous one. We're getting better at managing through, and the virus seems to be less virulent than the than over time. So that's good. That feels like that's you know going in the right direction. On the Russian invasion, you know, my sense is, and I say this with less confidence, but my sense is that we're the worst of the fallout is at hand. And the key here is oil prices. You know, we're sitting at 100, 110, 115 dollars a barrel, and I think that reflects the reality that the EU, the European Union, is going to stop buying Russian oil. Hopefully. Uh, that that is the worst of it. Now, here I say this with a lot less confidence because you know the Russian aggression could go lots of different paths, but it feels like the most likely scenario is that the worst is at hand. And if those two things are right, and here we need a bit of luck uh, that I am right, then I do think uh, inflation has peaked and it will start to come in over time and will become much more comfortable by the end of uh, 2023. That's still a long time. I mean, that that's a long time for folks still to pay what they're paying for for gasoline and food, right? How how does that trajectory sort of move down? Is it sort of a steep fall, or, or is this sort of very gradual? Yeah, I mean, let's uh, just give you a number. You know, inflation, CPI, inflation, consumer price inflation year over year feels like it peaked in March at eight point five percent. Yeah, it feels like we're going to be around five by the end of the year, two and a half by the end of 2023, which would be kind of at the high end of what the Fed would tolerate. And I think would, would feel comfortable, uh, you know, for most that, that that that's not great. I mean, we're going to be still shelling out a lot more to buy the same stuff that we were buying previously. But I do think people will feel better that the trend lines 
are in a positive direction. So it's not only about you know the rate of inflation; it's about which way are they headed. If if we're at eight and a half headed south, that's one thing. If we're eight and a half percent and headed north, that's totally a different thing. Let me finish with this, sort of as we talk about the Fed and, and these actions that they're taking to slow down the economy a little bit. Um, what does that mean then for job growth? Are we going to start seeing unemployment tick back up? Well, job growth has got to slow. I mean, otherwise we're going to overheat. I mean, we've been creating a half a million jobs on average for over a year, which is great when you have high unemployment. But now that unemployment's low, 3.6%, you know, we, we growth has to slow. In fact, we have to get down to something closer to 100K per month to be consistent with the growth in the labor force and, and for unemployment to stabilize. And that has to happen over the next few months. And that's, you know, exactly what the Fed is doing. Of course, that goes back to threading the needle. It's not a machine, right? It, it would be nice if you could turn a, a knob, they say, go from 500K to 100K and, and then stop there. That, that, that would be wonderful. But that's not the way the, this, the economy works and the world works. So as you're slowing, you do run the risks uh, risk that people start to lose faith. They go, oh, my gosh, the economy's slowing. And now I'm hearing about layoffs where I wasn't hearing about that before. All those unfilled open positions are evaporating. So people get nervous and start pulling back. And if at the end of the day, a recession is a loss of faith. You know, People lose faith that they're going to have their job. Businesses lose faith that they're going to have customers for the things that they produce they then run into the bunker and we go into recession. So it's a very tricky part of the business cycle that we're entering into. And, you know, I, I think the Fed's going to pull this off uh, again with a little bit of luck. But uh, again, I'll, I'll, I say that with not a whole lot of confidence. The risks here are awfully high that, you know, we do suffer an economic downturn. It's something that we've been following a long time. I always appreciate uh, your insight and, and our chats, Mark. So thanks so much for that. And we'll uh, we'll continue to follow this and bring you on to help explain uh, what's happening, because it sounds like we don't really get a sense of whether or not this was right or wrong for a few months. Right. That's sort of the, the nature exactly. of, of putting this out. California politicians like note love to say, as California goes, so goes the rest of the country. And this Tuesday, the politicos are watching some notable candidates and some powerful narratives. While a red wave is predicted this fall, California has three congressional seats currently held by Republicans that Democrats have their eyes on. One of those seats is held by Congressman David Valadeo, a Republican in a blue district whose district is now even more blue after redistricting. He was one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach then-President Trump the second time, and he's the only one of those 10 in which Trump has not endorsed a challenger. I mean, like I said earlier, this is the most Democratic seat, and it's by a long shot. And so this is a seat that I think even he knows that um, I'm probably the only one that can win it. Valadeo told KGET-TV last month, it's also a heavy Latino district, and more Latinos have been leaning Republican as of late. California holds jungle primaries, meaning the top two vote-getters, regardless of party, advance to the general. And after Tuesday, Governor Gavin Newsom will find out who he will face in November after surviving last year's recall. Investigative reporter Michael Schellenberger has hit Newsom and really all California politicians hard, even ahead of his bid for governor, over crime, mental health, and especially homelessness, even interviewing the homeless himself. And what's your drug of choice, brother? Uh, heroin. Um, crystal bed. Meth and heroin. Meth? Yeah. I don't know anybody that doesn't smoke. You don't know anybody that doesn't smoke meth? No. We saw a woman who was pregnant just now. Yeah, what is she smoking? Video. 
She's smoking fentanyl and she's eight months pregnant. Homelessness and crime have also dominated the L.A. mayor's race, where former Republican real estate developer Rick Caruso will likely win, but not by enough to avoid a runoff with Congresswoman Karen Bass. But first, let's talk Congress. Redistricting took a different turn this time around in California with the state's one-seat loss and Republican districts that are now more blue. So Democrats won't have many opportunities to flip Republican-held seats. It's just the political environment is just so good for Republicans. There are hardly any opportunities for Democrats to, to go on offense. Josh Krauthauer is a Fox News radio political analyst and a National Review columnist. There are five seats held by House Republicans that are very competitive, that Democrats will have a chance to go on offense, and three of them are in California. And we'll get a little bit of a preview on these races on, on, on primary night. It will, the three members, by the way, David Valadeo, uh, the Republican from California in the Central Valley. you got Michelle Steele in Southern California, and, and you've also got Mike Garcia, who, who won two, two uh, one special election, one regular election, by the narrowest of margins the second time. And he's also facing a likely tough race this time around. Those are the three, so three of the five offensive opportunities for Democrats are in California. You also have Republicans on offense in a number of other California races as well. But uh, California is going to be home to a whole lot of competitive elections in November, and we're going to get a preview of them with the primaries coming up next Tuesday. Val the Valadeo seat feels uh, of note. It's a Democratic-leaning district in Central California, and California farm country. He's a Republican. He's done well in past elections, uh, except for one, I think, in 2018 he lost, but then he came back. But of note, he was one of 10 Republicans to vote to impeach President Trump the second time, and yet his is the only race of the 10 in which Trump hasn't backed a challenger. And I'm just wondering why you think that is. Part of the reason is that the only Republican that can win a seat that's that's pretty Democratic, actually got more Democratic after redistricting, is David Valadeo. Uh, and he's uniquely popular in, in, in what is a, a, a solidly Democratic district. It's the He actually is the Republican that represents the most Biden-friendly in the entire country, and, and it's, it's mm. going to Rudy Salas is, is his Democratic opponent. He was a state assemblyman who's pretty popular in his in his neck of the woods, and it's going to be one of the closest races in the country. Valadeo, though, has widespread popularity. He's got high approval ratings in that district. He wins over mm. some Democrats, certainly some independents, uh, and, and he's got a track record at least since 2020. He's won uh, in 2020. He won a, a seat that was was awfully friendly to, to Joe Biden. So so I think the one thing to watch in that race, it's a Hispanic majority district. Hispanic voters across the country have been trending somewhat to the Republican Party. Uh, and that may be a key to Valadeo winning another term, actually winning over some Hispanic voters because they, they actually view their Democratic Party a little more negatively, negatively than they did uh, five or six years ago. We'll have to watch those numbers uh, on the Latino vote. Let's talk about Tom McClintock's seat. After redistricting, he decided to run in a different district that is considered, I guess, more safely conservative. But Republicans still have the edge in District 3. And while former President Trump hasn't endorsed a whole lot in Tuesday's primaries, he has backed Assemblyman Kevin Kiley. And if the name sounds familiar, it's because he tried to run against Governor Gavin Newsom in last year's recall. Um, what do you make of, of this seat and Trump's endorsement here because he's not really endorsing a whole lot this time around. Yeah, it's yet another test of, of whether Trump's endorsement has quite the juice 
that it did when he was president. We saw in Georgia and Alabama uh, some setbacks for, for the former president. The fact that his endorsement not only didn't matter, some, some Republicans like Governor Brian Kemp, Brad Raffensperger won overwhelmingly uh, against yeah. Trump-backed opponents. So Trump has endorsed, he, you know, he's endorsed for governor, for Senate. He's endorsed for, in some of these states for very low-level offices, seemingly for dog catcher <laughs> and some of these lo- local local races. This is a, a pretty local race, a congressional race in the 3rd District where uh, the Republican nominee is likely going to be, or the, whoever wins this uh, primary on the Republican side is likely going to be the next congressman. Kevin Kiley has some name ID from that recall election for governor. He's a state assemblyman, pretty conservative. Uh, he probably is the, the front runner, but he does have a pretty serious Republican opponent in Scott Jones, who's a, a Sacramento County sheriff uh, and someone who has also a political base of support in that district. So uh, keep an eye on, on, on this primary. It's going to be uh, whoever the Republican wins, whichever Republican wins is going to be the congressman. But Trump's endorsement is not a guarantee we know uh, in, in, in single-handedly allowing a candidate to become a member of Congress. Now, he survived last year's recall, as we've noted, but Governor Newsom is up for re-election. Michael Schellenberger, the investigative journalist who's done a lot of work on uh, an interviewing of the the homeless population. Uh, He's written books. He's the the challenger, I think, probably being most talked about. Um, He's really hammered state leaders over homelessness, crime, mental illness. I don't know, though. What's your thought? Can he... Could he really mount a serious challenge to somebody like Newsom, or do you, do you just need to be a bigger name in a state with 40 million people? Schellenberger, I, I have some of Schellenberger's uh, books. Which are, he's, a, he's a former Democrat. He was a climate activist, and he became sort of a heterodox analyst when it came to energy policy and criticizing some climate change activism. Uh, and, and he's lately become a, a very outspoken critic of, of the the criminal policies or the, the criminal justice policies in states like California, namely in San Francisco and in Los Angeles, which have very progressive uh, prosecutors at the helm. Uh, yeah. You know, he, the big question is, I mean, he, he's, he may be the best known candidate other than Newsom. You have other Republicans, other Green Party candidates, independent candidates. It's a big ballot uh, for, for, for that uh, gubernatorial race. Uh, if he can make it into second place and make it into the runoff, you know, Gavin Newsom is going to be the heavy favorite, but Schellenberger has been a very articulate critic of the governor's policies uh, on everything from energy to crime. And I, look, I, I think it would be a race to watch at the very least if if, if Schellenberger could finish in second place. I think that's not a, a it's not guaranteed. He's running as an independent or no, 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 no. He's not declaring a party uh, on the ballot. So that's going to be a tough, tough task for him to finish in second yeah. place. But if he gets to the runoff, it's, it'll be a race to watch. Schellenberger's focused on San Francisco in a lot of um, his writings, but homelessness is absolutely out of control in L.A., where there is a mayoral primary. We're going to go drill down even more local here. Um, A longtime Republican who became an independent and then became a Democrat. I don't know if he's the favorite, but he's definitely polling like neck and neck. Uh, Rick Caruso, major real estate developer uh, in the city. And I guess polling is just really tight right now between him and Congresswoman Karen Bass. Uh, what are you sort of paying attention to here? What do you see? I find it interesting as an L.A. native to watch people talk about uh, Rick Caruso because, as we've talked about before, L.A. is such a blue city. And the fact that the Caruso's made such headway is, I think, of note. It very much of note. And if Rick Caruso – this race looks like it's going to go to a runoff. So even if Rick Caruso comes yeah. in first place, he's still going to have to deal most likely with Congresswoman Karen Bass. Uh, so that, that just coming in first place isn't enough. But, boy, if he puts a strong showing, 
in in, in the in the primary coming up next Tuesday, and he has a chance to win. Uh, a former Republican, a, a businessman, someone who is running on the issues of crime and disorder and homelessness that have really hurt uh, the standing of the biggest cities in California and LA especially uh, that that is going to be a, an earthquake that'll be an earthquake in California and it may send a message that in some of these very blue cities that have had very liberal very progressive governance that New York City uh, San Francisco uh, Milwaukee areas where crime has just been out of control Chicago uh, the, Chicago my goodness I mean, you can go on and on and these are very blue right. areas of the country if a moderate if a former Republican can win in Los Angeles it could happen anywhere, and you know, it reminds me, uh, Jess, of, of Rudy Giuliani in 1993. I don't, th- I don't think someone that uh, not the Giuliani of today, but the Giuliani of '93. You know, I don't know if someone that pugnacious could win in that blue of a city, any, in New York or LA or anywhere like that anymore. But someone in the Mike Bloomberg mold, in the moderate businessman mold, I think certainly mm-hmm. could, and and. Certainly, Caruso is is showing that there's a if you have the money, there's a model for that that type of campaign, even in a very blue city like Los Angeles. And he's got the money. Uh, let's head east. We're leaving California. We're going to New Jersey now, Josh. They are having a primary as well. I'm sorry to be cliche, but I feel like all eyes really are on Tom Melanowski's seat, even if it's not like a hot primary. It's just because of what redistricting did and the notion that this seat might just be a loss for Democrats. Yeah, so so Democrats control the redistricting process for the most part in New Jersey, and it was a game of musical chairs. They, they protected every single Democratic incumbent, many of whom would have been vulnerable otherwise, but they had to throw someone under the bus. And the person they threw under the bus, Tom Malinowski, who, you know, if this was a normal election without, without a the, the likelihood of a Republican wave situation, Malinowski might have a chance of winning, but it's a, it's a marginal district in a wave year, and, and, and Malinowski is actually facing will probably face Tom Kane Jr., uh, the son of the former Republican governor, who's considered one of the strong Republican candidates in any race in the country. Uh, so, so Malinowski is, I don't think he's out of it, but he is one of the most vulnerable Democrats, thanks to redistricting and thanks to having one of the stronger uh, Republican challengers running in, in a big race like this. Uh, Josh, I'm also looking at Montana um, because they gained a, a congressional district. They used to only have one. Uh, it's operated by Matt Rosendale, run by Matt Rosendale, uh, but they have another district. Former President Trump has backed his former Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke for that seat, and he's backed Rosendale as well for the other seat. But Rosendale's challengers, interestingly, are not coming across like we've seen other GOP challengers have. They're pitching themselves more as moderate and less Trumpy. I mean, maybe that's just unique to Montana. Everybody's got their own like sort of regional feel and flavor, but. Um, I find that interesting to watch, especially in terms of the internal Republican Party politics. Yeah, it's interesting, though. You know, the new the leading candidate in that new district is Trump interior, former Trump interior secretary, Ryan Zinke, who was the congressman at, at one point uh, at the at large congressman in the state of Montana. He would gotten to got himself into a lot of controversy as, as interior secretary. He was pr- pretty, pretty uh, loyal Trump, Trump ally in the cabinet. And he looks like he is going to be the Republican favorite in that, in that crowded primary for the new district. So, um, and Rosendale is one of the, you know, he's one of these, uh, he has very, very uh, isolationist views on foreign policy. I don't know if that's Trump, if that counts as MAGA or Trumpy these days, but he is sort of an outlier in terms of some, some views on foreign policy in the Republican caucus. So, you know, I, I think Montana you know, if, if Zinke does win that primary, he's likely going to be the next congressman in the state. And, and you know, I, I, I think that he's going to be a pretty reliable uh, vote for the Republican Party. 
And finally, Josh, other states are going. South Dakota, New Mexico, Iowa, Mississippi. Um, we know Mississippi's fourth district, uh, Congressman Palazzo, uh, has like six challengers. Uh, and, and in Iowa, Senator Chuck Grassley is facing a, a primary challenge, although I think by all accounts it looks like he's uh, going to coast there. Uh, anything you're paying attention to other than the things we've talked about? Yeah, I mean, I think those primaries are going to be pretty anticlimactic. The, the one race I'm watching, though, Jess, is the Iowa 3rd District race with Cindy Axney. She's the, the, the two-term congresswoman. Uh, pretty popular, pretty pragmatic in her two terms in the House. But it's a, it was a Trump district. It's, it's still a Trump district. And she's got some good you know, Republican opposition, Zach Nunn, probably being the leading Republican challenger yeah. in that third district. So we'll see who her challenger is. We'll find that out next Tuesday. Axney is, is going to be one of the top 10 uh, more, more vulnerable uh, House Democrats. So that, that race, if she ends up trailing, if there are polls that come out showing her behind the Republican at some point, that would be a very ominous sign for the Democratic Party and their ability not just to hold the House, but to prevent a big red wave from happening. Josh Grassauer, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Jessica. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, the January 6th committee goes prime time. An evening hearing is set as the panel investigating last year's Capitol riot starts making its case about what they say happened and why to the American public. And the Supreme Court is expected to hand down more opinions Monday. There's still a couple dozen cases argued this term that have not been decided with less than a month to go now before the justices break for the summer. Topping that list, of course, the abortion challenge out of Mississippi. A draft opinion leaked to Politico indicates a majority of the court is ready to set aside Roe. We'll keep you posted. And President Biden heads west, hosting the Summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. But there are still plenty of questions about the guest list and the agenda. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our entire team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. The Will Cain Show is now dropping five episodes a week. Join Fox and Friends weekend host Will Cain as he tackles the latest headlines from his unique perspective, along with thought-provoking interviews with leading figures and live calls from viewers and listeners. Listen wherever you download your favorite podcasts.